Well, you're welcome to grab a seat. Again, uh, as Ashley said, that our uh, pancake was postponed, but don't worry, it'll still happen. Uh, but we will still have an opportunity to hang out downstairs and uh, have some coffee and, and treats and just to get to know uh, one another. Uh, for those of you that are new, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the pastor here at Bethany in West Seattle. Uh, and if you've been here for at least a couple of weeks, you know that we have been uh, on this sermon series uh, just regarding our vision. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we are one location connected to six different locations. Uh, and, and basically, our vision, as we talked about and started off last week, was to, uh, to gather. There's something about the uniqueness of this rhythm of gathering. That's why uh, you guys are here this morning, this Sunday, because you acknowledge that. Uh, there's this idea where we don't just gather, but we also grow, which is what we're going to be talking about today. What does it look like to, to, to grow in our faith, in our community, our understanding of God? Uh, and, and lastly, kind of our three pillars is to go, is to what does it look like not just to be so insulated within the four walls of our church, uh, even in our little small group communities where you meet the same people and hang out with the same people uh, every week, but what would it look like uh, for us to be a beacon of hope and light to the world uh, and to be more practical in our own neighborhoods. And so uh, I for sure am looking forward to talking about that. Uh, but again, this morning we talk about this idea of, of just growing in our faith. We grow, not just uh, in our faith, but different parts of our lives, that there's this journey of growth that Christ calls us on this journey with him to look more like him, to imitate him, to reflect his image. And that's what we would call, uh, in kind of churchy words, a spiritual formation. And so this morning, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, yes, we're going to be grounded in, in scripture. Yes, this will be a, a sermon. Uh, but the way it might sound different is that it may sound kind of like a presentation, if you will, because what I want to do this morning is lay out uh, this spiritual formation process that I've just been kind of grappling with for uh, actually several months now, and I'm not the first one to do it. People have been doing this for hundreds of years, and so we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But before we go there, before we read the scripture, before we pray, I just want to say this, uh, and it's a little off, uh, it's a little... Um, off from what we're going to talk about this morning, but for those of you that know me, last year uh, I lost a friend uh, to suicide, and he was uh, a pastor at a, we worked together uh, at a church in Seattle, he then moved to California, was pastoring at a church there, uh, and he was battling some, uh, some mental health Things and, and he ended up taking his own life, uh, left his wife and two kids under the age of two. And, and then last week, uh, there was another pastor. Uh, I didn't actually know this gentleman, but uh, also from California, a pretty well-known pastor in the, in the church world, uh, also uh, ended up taking his own life as it was um, known that he also wrestled with some mental health illness. And so what I want to say, just even before we start, I just want to acknowledge that. And ironically, this week is uh, Suicide Prevention Week or Month or Day, and 
Just to let you know that uh, according to the World Health Organization, that nearly 800,000 people die of suicide each year. And for those between the ages of 15 to 29, this is the second leading cause of death. And so what I want to say this morning is let's not be afraid to talk about mental health, depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever it is, anything in between. Let's remove the stigma. Let's remove the shame, the guilt. And we can start by even sharing our own stories and seeking help if if you need it, if we need it, and offering help if they need it, if people around us need it. And again, I, it, it, I just say this, I just have to say this, uh, if you are reaching such a sense of hopelessness, please reach out to somebody, to, to me. Uh, I will literally give you my personal cell phone number if you need someone to talk to and to connect with. We have lists of professionals, of, of therapists that you can talk to, that we trust. And really, if you feel like, and there's no judgment, if you really feel like you're at the end of the line here, uh, there's a number that is highly recommended. It's 1-800-273-TALK. Just remember, 273-TALK. And that is a national hotline that you can use yourself, you can pass on to others. But uh, it's a real thing that I hope that, especially as a church, we have failed to recognize the second most leading cause of death, especially to young people, and this is globally according to the World Health Organization, not just the United States, this is globally. So may we as a church name and not be afraid to identify things that are real, things that society may have put a stigma on or shame or guilt, because a lot of us, many of us, we wrestle and the percentage is high. I don't want to give you a random number, but the percentage is high when it comes to even just depression and anxiety. And I'm sure if you're anything like me, you've experienced that. And so may we be a, a catalyst to bringing hope and help and support to a subject in an area where it's been pushed under a rug for, for too long. Uh, another organization that I follow, I'm sorry, this is not the sermon, but another organization I follow is uh, called To Write Love on Her Arms, and I love what they're doing, and so if you have a social media platform, just if you have internet, uh, just look up To Write Love on Her Arms. So, with that said, uh, our opening passage comes from Luke chapter 9. Verse 57 to 62, either you can pull it up on your phone, your Bible that you brought, you can hear, it on the, uh, hear me or read it on the screen. But the word of the Lord says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Then another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back 
and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Let me just pray real quick and we'll unpack this. God, thank you that you've given us this holy text that we may learn, that we may hear from you, that we may grow in our faith, that this is a way, a primary way, a strong way of speaking to us. So God, do that this morning. God, even in this Sunday, God, would you just be with the Wilson family as they have to navigate the loss of their son. Would you bring peace and comfort and may they use their stories to help others, the many others that are wrestling with the same story. God, we pray for even areas in our lives and in places that we may not uh, be confronted with, with uh, every day. God, we pray for the Bahamas as they have uh, just have been just some parts have just been destroyed by the hurricane. And so, God, would you just also be with them, provide support, provide and mobilize people to go down and the things that they need, whatever it is, God, would you just be real to them? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, in verse 57, immediately, uh, I love that it says, as they were walking along the road, as they were walking along the road. So Jesus, here's Jesus walking along the road with his disciples, and they have this conversation about what it looks like to follow after him, to receive the kingdom of God. Because uh, at this point, uh, Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Jesus was healing people. Jesus was uh, forgiving people. Jesus was hanging out with the people that other people weren't hanging out with. And all of a sudden, he became a popular man. And, and as he and his disciples, people that wanted to learn from him, grow into what he knows and to reflect his image, were walking with him. And the, Luke, the, the gospel writer says, as they were walking along the road. And this word road is this Greek word, uh, hadas. Uh, and for those of you, again, that are kind of new to the church, uh, we look oftentimes in the original language, because surprise, surprise, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was translated many times over and over and over again. Uh, the New Testament was translated uh, originally from the Greek, Old Testament from the Hebrew. Uh, and so it's important for us to look at the original word to see what the writer was trying to say in the first century. And so he says, Jesus and his people and his friends, his disciples are walking on this road. And this word is hadas. And yes, it can be translated into road, like an actual street that you walk on. But oftentimes it's uh, translated as the way. Oftentimes it's translated as journey, as if you're going on a journey. And so there's something here that's implied between Jesus and his disciples that they were not just walking along this road, this path, physically taking steps, but they were going on this journey. And so his disciples are asking him, I want to go on this journey with you. Because you see, oftentimes a Christian life, if you're a follower of Jesus, the idea, even the, the words to follow, even the word to be a disciple it's to, it's to agree, it's to be committed to, it's to say yes to this journey that Christ calls us to. 
And whether this journey uh, is a journey of just uh, of joy, whether it's a journey uh, of heartache, or whether it's a journey of anything in between, there's something that we believe that in our life, in our journey with Christ, to reflect his image, to be more like him, to unpack what the word has to say, we know that sometimes it can be joyful, it can cause heartache, but at the end of the day, it compels us to grow. It compels us to grow in our faith, in our reflection of Christ. And we look back on that journey, not that we've reached the end of our journey, but we reach back in our journey and say, well, there are things that God placed in my life. Again, joys, heartaches, anything in between that has grown me, or the Bible would even use the word matured me in the faith of salvation. I liken it to, you know, examples of hiking. If you're a true Pacific Northwestern, uh, then you know that uh, there's, a, there's a great scene of hiking and that you should actually, like, I know there's a lot of transients. I know there's a lot of people that are just moving into Seattle. But I would say this, a prerequisite for being a true PNW uh, is to develop this love for hiking. And for myself, as someone who was born and raised in Seattle, uh, I actually didn't uh, receive this gift of love for hiking really until I was like late 20s, early 30s. Uh, Before that, I always wondered like, what is it about hiking and backpacking that people enjoy? And maybe some of you can resonate with that, where I'm like, you pick up a heavy backpack, you go up a hill, and then you walk back down, right? I mean, essentially, that's what hiking is, right? Uh, but it, uh, in order for me to truly understand this, many of you guys have this sort of story before. I took a, a backpacking trip to Montana to Glacier National Park. Uh, and I just remember uh, putting on a heavy pack with a buddy of mine. And we hiked up, I think it was like 15, 16 miles uh, just to the top where we set out camp. And I just remember how miserable that hike was, how difficult it was, how, you know, oftentimes I was so thirsty because it was so hot, I was hungry, and so we had to stop. Uh, But there was something about once you reach the top of the mountain where I look back, and I even look at the scene of the path that we walked, and man, there was so much, not just a sense of reward, but a sense of beauty, and a sense of thankfulness, and a sense of appreciation of what's happening here right now, and what I'm enjoying in the present, And I would argue that the reason I was able to enjoy and appreciate the scene and the beauty and the nature around me was not because I was just plopped onto the top, because I had to experience what that journey was to even get there in the first place. I would imagine if, hypothetically speaking, if a helicopter just plotted me down at the top of the mountain, I wouldn't have the same gratitude, the same sense of awe of what God is doing Unless I had gone through that journey, that hike, that pathway of just going through, chugging along, learning and making mistakes, experiencing joys, highs and lows, meeting people, meeting friends, I know that that top of the mountain experience would be completely different had I not said yes to going on this journey up the mountain. And just like that, our Christian faith the day that we say yes to following Jesus, what we're saying is, yes, I want to follow by committing to this journey and follow you to look more like you and to grow in my faith. 
Because that's ultimately what a journey is. It's, it is to be growing, whether it's through joyful or heartaches, no matter what it is. If you are growing, you are going through this journey. And so the disciples, you know, they have this interaction with Jesus. Uh, and they say, well, Jesus, I want to follow you, a.k.a. I want to go on this road with you, a.k.a. I want to join this journey with you, Meaning, I want to look more like you. I want to be like you. I want to be your disciple. And a better word for disciple in the Greek is, yes, there's this word disciple to be like Jesus. But really, a better interpretation of disciple, and I hate using this word because I feel weird saying it, but it's this word apprentice. Okay? It seems weird because I'm like, hey, if you want to be a real Christian, a good Christian, you have to be an apprentice. And they're like, what, we have to be like you? And I'm like, no, no, not like me. Because my name is Prentice, not like me, but you have to be an apprentice uh, of Jesus, meaning a learner, someone that, that literally follows and walks the steps of Jesus and imitates the things of Jesus and says the things of Jesus and works and lives to be like Jesus, to be a, an apprentice under Jesus. That's what it means to, to, to say yes to this journey and to say yes to growing in our faith, which ultimately is the journey. And so it says, as they were walking, they were having this conversation, and Jesus says some, some weird, different, unique things that you wouldn't think to hear in verse uh, 9, verse uh, 38. It says, as on the road, it says, I will follow you. So one disciple says, I will follow you. And Jesus' response in 58 says, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what Jesus is saying is, you want to follow me? Great, you can follow me, but, but let me remind you that foxes have holes to go into because they have a home. And, and birds have nests because they have a home. Because me, and Jesus is saying about himself, his life is like, you don't understand. I'm a bit nomadic. And oftentimes I'm not even welcome in people's spaces. Uh, ultimately, in, in a weird sense, he's saying that he doesn't have a home, that he's going from place to place, and oftentimes being rejected and rejected and rejected. And he's saying, man, even foxes have a place to sleep and a place to call home. Even birds have a place to sleep and a place to call home. And he's saying, if you want to follow me, prepare, oftentimes, for a difficult life. Prepare that following after me doesn't just mean that you're going to have the best life ever. And if you've ever been convinced that the moment that you say yes to this journey of growing in Christ uh, means that your life will forever be awesome and, and great and full of sunshine and daisies and smiles and laughter. Uh, yes, that's part of it, but also that's not the whole story. And we all know that if you've ever been through any trauma, any catalytic experience, we all know that just because we say yes to this journey with Jesus to grow in Christ doesn't mean that life will be easy. Sometimes and oftentimes, as Jesus is saying, it can even be more difficult. Because now, now we have an obligation, an obligation to stand up towards injustice. Now we have an obligation to forgive. Now we have an obligation to share the hope of Jesus to other people. Now we have an obligation to be generous and hospitable to people, even people that you don't consider friends, even people that you don't even like, even people that are different than you. Where there's needs, 
We have an obligation. Now, as we say yes to Jesus and the ways of Jesus and to behave like Jesus and do the things like Jesus, life, I'll be honest, has now gotten a little bit more difficult. And Jesus reminds us, even foxes have a place to sleep, even birds have a place to go, but if you decide to follow me, sometimes life won't be as easy. And then another person, in verse 59, to another he said, Jesus, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. The second person. But first, Lord, let me bury my father. Seems like a reasonable ask, right? Like, my father just died, let me just bury my father first, and then I will follow you. And then Jesus' response said to him, let the bury bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's a really strange way of responding to somebody that is just merely saying, Jesus, let me just bury my own father. And so the idea and the point here is that in the first century, to bury somebody was a religious duty. It was so important, so sacred, that anytime you had to bury somebody, everything stopped. Time stopped. Festival stopped. Uh, any type of obligation to other people, it stopped because your primary responsibility was to bury the dead. And this was especially true when it was your own father. In a very patriarchal society, uh, it was even more important that time stopped because of the ever so importance of this religious duty of burying your father. And Jesus is saying, in this very moment of time, when you have something more important to do, when society tells you you have more important things to do, I want you to say no, and you have to read this as, as uh, hyperbole, as emphatic. This is a story of Jesus saying, even the most important things, even the things that society tells you is of most importance, in order to follow me, you must say no to that. And are you ready? Not only is this road of discipleship, of to follow Jesus, not only is it difficult and that life isn't always going to be handy and dandy, it's also going to be costly. It's going to cost you to be sacrificial to the things that you deem as important in your life. Money, upward mobility, status, particular relationships. You have to know that if you want to follow me, what you're saying is that everything else falls into second place, third place, fourth place, fifth place when it comes to our life and following after Christ. Are you ready to do this? And many times, even throughout the scriptures, we read the answer is no. Because sometimes following after Jesus is too costly. <clears throat> and we use language like this person, and he says, Jesus, follow after me. And, and the man says, yes, I'll follow after you, but let me do this first. And oftentimes we have our, but let me do this first. When I have my life all together, then I will go back to God. I'll go back to church. When I have made it, I'll go back to, when I have a family, I'll go back to church. When I have, you know, I have accumulated all these things, then we'll go back to church and follow after God and to, and to be a Christian again. I hear things like that all the time. 
I remember <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, I had to go to a funeral down in Houston <clears throat> for a friend. Uh, his father had passed, and I had never met uh, his father before, but I went to go support. I remember going to the funeral, and he was such a loved man. I mean, he was involved in, in Boy Scouts. He was involved in prison ministry. He was a, a successful lawyer. Uh, he was involved in his church. And all those worlds just collided into celebrating his life. And, and what I'll remember most of that whole experience is sitting down before the, the memorial uh, to one of his uh, colleagues, uh, a lawyer friend. Uh, and uh, he said, I knew Keith for a long time. And I don't know what his spiritual background was, but he told me, he's like, Prince, you know what? Just from the cases I've worked with him on, just only those cases alone, most lawyers would have got themselves a boat, a big house, nice cars, multiple cars. See, some even have private jets. And he was saying, even, even, uh, and this is just in, in these cases alone, I can't even imagine all the other cases he's had and how much wealth and status and money and things that he could have, but Keith didn't care about those things. There's something about his faith in God and to, in his family that he deemed as more important. So he never bought a boat, uh, he never bought a private jet, he never bought all these things. Because he understood that life was more than just about those things. Now, I say, I'm not saying uh, having a boat and a jet, all those things are wrong. What I'm saying is it's important for us, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, an apprentice that wants to uh, join this journey of growth in our relationship with Christ, we have to understand, we have to know that it's Jesus plus nothing else. And sometimes that means we have to, it'll come as a cost and we have to give some things up. Lastly, we see in verse 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll just read that again. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back. Imagine uh, in this agricultural society where people are plowing, and oftentimes people will look back. How am I doing? How's my work? How are things going? And Jesus is using that example to anyone that looks at their life, and this is slightly encouraging. What Jesus is saying is, you don't have to look back. Do not be held back by the things of your past. And not only are things going to be costly, we have to give things up. Part of what is costly also is giving up the things that hinder us. Maybe that is guilt. Maybe that is shame. Maybe that is uh, you know, a self-acknowledgement of how you treat people, how you hurt people, how you, you know, uh, interact with God and others. Uh, again, in the churchy world, we call that sin when we confront our own sins. Oftentimes that means confronting a mirror in front of our own selves to really just have an honest look and an honest inventory of ourselves. And what Jesus is saying, yes, you can do that, you should do that, but don't be held back by it. You can't look back. You can't be held back from your past. And sometimes that's discouraging because this is kind of connected to what is costly, but sometimes we have to let go of the past identity, and sometimes our identity is not Christ first for those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus, 
but it's almost anything and everything else. I mean, I went to a, a wedding yesterday. It was a beautiful wedding, in fact. I loved it. And uh, we sat down, Maria and myself, Mitch and Elder, here on, we sat down at a table with some strangers, and they were lovely people. It was amazing. And, and, and I just couldn't help but to notice that the entire, at least first part of the conversation was, so what do you do? Because we didn't know each other, right? And so in order for us to get to know who we are, and we all do this. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's a good icebreaker. But it tends to lean towards a, uh, this thing of when we talk about who we are and what we are, we immediately talk about our jobs. Well, I do this for a living. And I do that for a living. And, you know, we're laughing. And I told them I was a pastor. And they stopped talking to me for a little bit. Uh, but, it, but it was fun. It was fun. I'm not, I'm not knocking that experience. But what I'm saying is oftentimes when we look at our identity, even our past, and what we hold on to of who we are in our identity, it's either what we do, what we've done, and what mistakes we have, or even what good things that we've accomplished. And what Jesus is saying is here is if you want to enter into maturity, into growth in your faith, into this journey, A, it's going to be very difficult it's going to be very costly, and you can't be held back from your past, whether from good things or bad things. And again, in this church language, we call all of this a call to spiritual formation. And there's so many definitions of spiritual formation, and I'll say my favorite one, again, uh, it's on this, it'll be on the screen. It's from Robert uh, Mulholland from this book called Invitation to a Journey. And there's so many people with definitions. Again, this idea of spiritual formation is hundreds and hundreds of years old, starting from the mystics, the process, or AKA the journey of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Another favorite author of mine, his name is Dallas Willard, has something very similar to this. Others, Henry Nouwen, John Orberg, John Stott, now, I know that, if, again, if you're new to the church, these are all foreign names, but just, just trust me, these are trusted names. I've uh, been around the church or been a theologian for years. Robert Mulholland is uh, a PhD in New Testament. But the whole idea, no matter whose definition that we subscribe to, is this idea that we as followers of Christ go on a journey to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And I love, and this is why I chose to share Mulholland's Definition: We do this in order for the sake of others, to serve others. And so what I want to do, just real quick to end it, is this is where it's going to be a little bit of a presentation-ish. And I can't take the credit. Uh, this, there's this book. Uh, I've, man, I've shared so many books with you guys. This is another book. It's another framework of spiritual formation. It's called The Critical Journey by Robert Gulick and Janet Hagberg. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, I read this when I was in seminary. I kind of dusted it off and kind of want to share it with you this morning. Uh, and it's based off of, and you'll read the intro, it's based off of this idea of stage theory. Uh, and stage theory is not just in the Christian world, uh, but it's also in uh, the world of psychology and sociology. It's just merely the idea that our life is in stages. There's oftentimes, there's maturity, we go in stages. We know that from everything else in our lives, sports, skills, vocation. 
There's 12-step programs, there's other religions in your life, in your job, in your children, in your family. There's stages that we enter into, and we call that stage theory. And real quick, just a quick note, what I want to tell you about stage theory, what I want to tell you about the spiritual formation process is that uh, it may sound linear, but it's not. Uh, it may sound like there's like a graduation, but there isn't. It's secular. In fact, uh, one pastor, theologian, says it's like the game of Monopoly. You just kind of go in a cycle. And then each time you go around, you kind of pick up more things and you gain some new things. You might lose some new things. So it's like Monopoly more than a, uh, a linear line. One space in the spiritual formation process, wherever you are at, is not better than the other. In fact, it's an ecosystem, and it works together. And a stage cannot be better than any other stage. If it is, we call that self-righteousness. And so, uh, according to this book, there are six stages of, of faith. And the first one, just real quickly, is this. It's the recognition of God. Now, obviously, when you want to start a spiritual formation process, when we enter it into a journey to grow in Christ, uh, then the first prerequisite is to know that there is Christ. Uh, and so this part is called recognition, is what Gulick calls it. It's this moment that we understand that the world is bigger than ourselves. It's a point in our lives where we acknowledge that there is a God. There's a point in our lives that it is God of the Bible, even. We don't, have an all, we don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. We just have this, uh, it could be an epiphany. It can be a, a, a whole season. Mine, you know, I hear stories of people that are like, oh man, this bad thing happened. And then that night I heard Jesus' voice saying, I'm real, follow after me. And, and honestly, I've never had that experience before. Uh, I would say mine came slow, steady and slowly. But there was a point where I had to acknowledge that life was bigger than myself that's recognized that there was indeed a God. Next, the key characteristic is, again, to acknowledge God, a higher being, that life is bigger than ourselves. And again, it could be due to a catalytic moment, trauma, pain, desperation. It could come through beauty that we've acknowledged. But again, there's got to be a moment where we recognize that God is real, whether we have fully encompassed what that looks like or not. Number two, uh, in this book, he calls it Life of Discipleship, a.k.a. learning about God. Key characteristics to this stage, for lack of a better word, we move on from recognizing God to now we're learning about God. You might join a small group. You might have a mentor. You might start practicing spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying uh, and meditating or singing or just having a regular attendance at church or whatever it is, uh, this is a time where you start soaking up uh, what you have learned, what you have recognized. You soak it up. You're, you're all in. You want to know more. I liken this to like an early stage of a relationship. I remember when Maria and I were first dating we constantly wanted to be around each other. We wanted to talk to each other. We were on the phone, and we were that corny, you know, kind of cheesy couple. That like, I don't want to hang up. You hang up first. No, you hang up first. No? Okay. I guess that's just me. And now things are a little bit different where she's like, Shh, don't talk to me. I'm watching The Bachelor. Okay? Don't talk to me. So I'm like, okay. 
you know, what happened to the days where we just can we just cannot talk to each other? Now the bachelor's on, and I have to I can't talk to her. Uh, I'm not saying that she loves me any less or more. I'm just saying it's different. Uh, and in this stage, uh, this is a part where we just want to soak it all in. We've acknowledged God. We've recognized that life is bigger than ourselves. Then we go into a season of just learning, whether it's through other people, whether it's through the scriptures. We just want to learn and soak it all in. And then three, we take that, the, Bible, the, the book says, uh, according to that, we go into another stage called the productive life. Not, not only do we now recognize, uh, but we have learned and now we are doing. Key characteristics to this uh, is identifying and using your gifts to serve others, sharing your faith, inviting people to church. I mean, this could look so different. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just some examples of what it might look like uh, to have a productive life for God. And again, here we still don't have all the answers. Sometimes we even do things just because we acknowledge that serving people is good. We may not even attach it so much to this spiritual calling that we have. We just acknowledge that our life is now a little bit different. Recognizing God, learning more about God, and now doing things according to what we have learned and what we recognize. And then we go into stage four, which I think is something that we've all been through or we all need to go through. It's called the journey inward, uh, otherwise known as the internal struggle. Some key characteristics of this could be words that describe this are, next slide, seeking depth. I just want to go deeper into faith. I want to know more. Or wrestling with beliefs or uh, a popular word these days, deconstructing faith meaning deconstructing maybe what my parents have taught me or whatever I learned in Sunday school growing up. Maybe it's a time where you experience doubt. And this, was, this book was written in the 90s. This was way before this idea of deconstruction was even happening. Uh, and, and I would agree that uh, the pathway towards maturity is ultimately, yes, you've recognized God. Yes, now you are learning more about God. And yes, you are moving and you are acting your faith out in real life. But there's got to be a moment... And this looks different for anyone and everyone, that you start to wrestle with what you have learned from the beginning, from stage two. Again, you can call it deconstructing, you can call it whatever you want, but there's got to be a moment where you kind of ask why. I remember my first year of seminary in the New Testament, uh, the seminary professor, my first day of class, I'll never forget this, he says, why did Jesus have to die for your sins in order for you to be able to go to heaven? I mean, we're seminarians. We should, have known, we should know this. And, and all of us were like, wait, what? I, you know, and I remember thinking, like, I, I don't even know how to answer that. I just know that it's just what I was told. And so, therefore, boom, it happens. But what if someone came up to you and said, why did Jesus have to die? How do you answer that? That's so weird. Like, in the ancient of days, there was the first humans, Adam and Eve, they ate a, a fruit And then all of a sudden, we're all born with sin. Okay, check. But in order for us to now be right with God and go to heaven, we have to, Jesus had to die on the cross in the first century. And then boom. And when we say this prayer of Jesus, please come into my heart. I love you forever, ever. Amen. All of a sudden, those sins are washed away. And after I die, I get to go to heaven. Is that strange to anybody else? I mean, it kind of is. It's okay. We're not going to be sat by lightning. I, I don't think so. I mean, last week was, I don't know. Maybe we will. All I'm saying is you can stay believing what you believe from childhood. I'm not saying don't and just, I hate this metaphor, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying do that. I'm just saying what you believe, you got to enter the season of now you own it. 
through wrestling, through conversation, through deconstructing, through reconstructing. You have to own it. Uh, let's move on. Next, the journey outward, rediscovering God. This is after the deconstruction phase and reconstruction. It's important. So oftentimes, we do a really good job, especially in this age, this time, where we just spit out everything we don't like. I mean, this isn't just uh, our spirituality, but this is our politics. This is our convictions. This is our politics. This is our legislation. Whatever it is. We just, here's what I don't like. Okay, but the question is, and what do you, what is your solution? What do you want to be, do about it? What do you want to be? How do you want to show up after that? And so this is a question that just asks and says, okay, now it's time for us to love sacrificially, to serve generously, to give and to be hospitable out of the deep inward movements that you've made within yourself. I know that stage three was to, to serve and to do things, but, but stage six, uh, five it's to say, you know what? There's this newfound sacrificial love. It's this even deeper uh, sense of just giving and pouring out, out of my experience of deconstructing, of having doubts, of asking questions. Lastly, the life of love is what he calls it. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what this feels like because I'm not there but I'll just read and I'll end with this. He says this, when we are at stage six, we have lost ourselves in the equation. And at the same time, we have truly found ourselves. We are selfless. This factor allows us to do the most extraordinary things. We may figuratively wash other people's feet or give our very lives in the service of God. At times, that means we die to ourselves. At times, it meant that we can mean that we die literally. We're at peace with ourselves, fully conscious of being the person God has created us to be. Fully conscious of being the person that God has created us to be. You experience a sense of freedom. And one author says this, freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. In fact, the opposite. Freedom is the ability to not do the things you want. You don't want to Forgive. You don't want to give away. You don't want to get angry. You don't want to. You want to choose not to love. Freedom in this stage is saying, you know what? I can choose to love. I don't have to get angry. I can give away. I can forgive. I mean, imagine the things that you feel like you can't do, and so you don't do it. But this is saying you can do it. I just read this quote. It's credited to Winston Churchill. I don't know if this is true, but it reminds me of what stage six might look like. He says this. At 20, you care so much about what people think of you. At 30, you stop caring about what people think of you. At 60, you realize they weren't thinking about you in the first place. There's something so deep and meaningful and significant about that. And I feel like it's something that you would experience when we chug along in our spiritual journey. I'm not there yet. Many of us are. Many of us aren't. So as I invite the worship team back up, what I just want to invite you to, now I might put this online, I might put this uh, as a visual, but I would say the practice for us this week 
is to see this, this spiritual formation process. Again, this is just one framework. And again, this isn't linear. This isn't perfect. This just gives words to just kind of identify where we are in our relationship with Christ, in our journey of faith. And to say, okay, here I am in order for us and myself and for you as a community to move forward. What does that look like? And so the homework for myself and for us is to just identify where are you in your relationship with God? And wherever you are, that's okay and it's good. There's no place that's better. There's no place that's worse. And may we come alongside one another to urge us along into serving God, to gaining depth, and to move towards this life of love. Pray with me. God, thank you. We love you. We want to love you better each day. Forgive us for the ways that we haven't. And teach us the ways that we need to do to move forward. We worship you. We give our lives to you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.